The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. I am joined today by a very special guest. It's actually quite amazing. He found the time to make it to the studio. Paul Holmes, publisher and CEO of The Homes Report. And before we get started with today's show, I would like to thank our new broadcast partner, Marketeers 4DC, for delivering today's show. We are going to run through a few things today, specifically the publicist Omnicom deal. Some of you may have heard about this deal and that it's actually not going to happen. And we're also going to talk about a gentleman called Max Clifford in the UK. And we'll be discussing our recently concluded Sabre Awards Americas and next week's EMEA Sabre Awards to talk about some of the work that has been doing well in the two shows. Paul, welcome. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be here. I think you have, a, as you know, a standing invitation to be on the Echo Chamber show whenever we can't find anyone else. Sure. Um, so let's talk about Publicis Omnicom or as I think it's it's better build Omni Shambles. Uh, a merger that was announced to much fanfare nine months ago would have created the largest holding group, would have also not insignificantly created the largest collection of PR agencies, something like $1.8 billion worth, which would have put it a clear distance ahead of WPP's $1.3 billion stable. I think it's $1.3 billion. It may have actually decreased. How is it that two groups that profess an expertise in reputation management, in financial communications, in investor relations, could end up with their reputations so severely undermined by the fallout from this debacle? So I think the first thing to say is that when the deal was announced nine months ago, I had written that public relations appeared to be an afterthought. And what I meant by that at the time was that I didn't think that the deal had any significant benefit for any of the various PR agencies involved. Certainly, it seemed to me that uh, there was no great sort of upside for MSL becoming part of, a, you know, becoming the fourth agency under an Omnicom Publicis banner, rather than being the one standalone agency as part of Publicis. And so I thought at the time that PR hadn't been considered. I didn't realize that they also hadn't considered the sort of PR aspects of selling the deal. And my suspicion is that they underestimated the degree of backlash that they would get from some of their competitors. You know, Martin Sorrell came to our conference in Miami and was fairly scathing about the deal and, and at our event predicted that it wouldn't go ahead. And there's no question that his PR campaign was far more successful, far more powerful than the PR campaign from Publicis Omnicom, which almost seemed to end the day that they did the grip and grin to announce the deal. I mean, I, I, you know, I think from that point on, there was a lack of communication about the benefits of the deal, and it sort of withered away almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as you know, we published uh, an analysis of, of the fallout yesterday. And and one of the things that's clear talking to a lot of people is that the benefits of the merger were poorly articulated externally, and perhaps even more importantly, internally. Um, The the internal communications, according to several people, 
we've spoken to within both groups were next to nothing, which seems baffling given that there are 130,000 people, or there would have been 130,000 people affected by this merger. Does that not surprise you? It doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't in that I think the vast majority of mergers, just on a global level, fall apart for sort of cultural reasons and communications reasons. I mean, I think generally companies are still not great at communicating. It's an afterthought in most deals. That it would be an afterthought in a deal that involved communications agencies and involved communications agencies that own M&A specialist firms is a little baffling, Mm -hmm. right? Having said that, I think that when you're looking at the winners and losers in this, there's no question to me that WPP is a winner. You know, they got their way. Mm -hmm. There's no question for me that Publicis and Omnicom look like losers. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that if I was running one of the PR agencies within Publicis uh, or Omnicom, I wouldn't be unhappy about this outcome. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that they're winners, but I'm saying that I don't think any of them necessarily saw any great competitive advantage for them in this merger. So ironically, you could even say that because the benefits were so poorly articulated, it means that now uh, the, the, the downside is limited. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. And I, I do think there was a significant downside. I mean, you know, MSL had been marketing itself for quite a long time on the basis of being the exclusive PR agency within Publicis. And I think it had really benefited from that position. And I don't know what the plan was, or, you know, given what we'd learned over the last few weeks, whether there even was a plan um, for what would have happened to MSL post-merger, whether it would have become part of the DAS unit of Omnicom alongside Ketchum, Fleischmann and Mm -hmm. Porter, or whether it would have had some sort of separate position within whatever was left of the publicist group. But, you know, the fact that that nobody seemed to know that suggests to me that they dodged a bullet. A couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Why do you think the public relations around this was so poor and why weren't any of these specialist firms, any of this formidable PR firepower, why weren't they consulted or brought in? There's no obvious answer to that question, right? I mean, hubris, you know, failure to think through the public relations implications, it's baffling. And, you know, maybe it's a question that only the principals involved. Maybe they got caught up in their own hype and enthusiasm for the deal and uh, and didn't think it through properly. But it is, as you say, mm. uh, a head scratcher. I think one of the reasons the benefits were poorly articulated and communicated is because there were very few benefits, as far as I can tell, certainly for clients and for employees. You, do you agree with that assessment? To a certain extent. I mean, I think that there were clear benefits on the media buying side. And to me, this was always a deal about media buying. It was always a deal about, you know, the benefits that size brings in that context. But the reality is that that's the only context in which there's a huge benefit from that kind of scale. I mean, I think we've seen over the last three or four years as we track growth in the PR industry, mm-hmm. that the bigger you get, the more difficult it becomes to grow mm-hmm. and the more difficult it becomes to grow profitably. And I, you know, I don't think from the, the creative side of these companies, from either the ad agencies or the, the PR firms or indeed the digital groups, there was ever going to be any great benefit to the merger. I think the only client side benefits were going to be uh, media buying. Mm. 
And where does this leave the reputations of Publicis Group and Omnicom Group now and of their CEOs, our two plucky protagonists, John Wren and Maurice Levy? It seemed to me that particularly for Publicis, this was a legacy deal. This was going to be Maurice Levy's legacy. Well, there's a clearly articulated benefit. <laughs> well, yeah, for them, right? Or for him. or But, but so I, I think, I mean, and I think it leaves Publicis looking like they really needed this and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's probably a bigger problem for Publicis than it is for Omnicom. Mm. Um, you know, first of all, we're discussing this as if it was going to be a merger of equals. And I'm not mm. sure that I think that that was necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand why people try to position mergers that way, but it's nearly always dishonest to do so. For, I think this would have been a nice to have from an Omnicom point of view, but it looks like it looks much more like a need to have from the publicist point of view. And so I think that their reputation is much more problematic after mm-hmm. the deal f- fell apart. So let's move to the UK now. Many of our listeners, I suspect, will be aware of the case involving Max Clifford, the uh, publicity man, some circles, most likely regarded also as a PR man by large sections of the British public, um, who was convicted uh, a couple of weeks ago um, for sexual assault offences and will face, I think it's eight years in prison. So a sad affair all round for uh, for everyone concerned. Paul, I wanted to ask you, for many people, I think, Max Clifford, frankly, represents the public relations industry. If you were to ask the average man on the street, bearing that in mind, what damage do you think this whole affair does to the UK PR industry? My initial reaction was, and, and this stems from my own feelings, about Max Clifford, um, which is that he's not a public relations person, or he's certainly not part of the mainstream public relations industry in any meaningful sense. I mean, we have, I don't think we have written a single word about Max Clifford in the Holmes Report in the entire history of our publication. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, Max Clifford is a press agent with the emphasis very much on agent. I mean, he tends to represent celebrities and negotiate deals for them to tell their stories. And I don't think that that's something that the majority of PR people spend a lot of time thinking about or doing. To the best of my knowledge, he didn't have a single Fortune 500 or FTSE 100 client on his client list. I mean, he didn't represent major corporations. He existed on the periphery of our industry doing something that was very specialist and or outside of the traditional definition of PR. Having said that, you know, and and that would have been my position if you'd asked me about Max Clifford before this incident unfolded. Having said that, you know, the fact that anybody can call themselves a public relations person, we have no, you know, formal criteria for being part of the industry. We have no um, licensing, um, nor should we have. The fact is that he was certainly able to self-identify as a public relations person, and the media was certainly free to call him a public relations person. And I think that it's um, fair to say that since the industry did not aggressively distance itself from the idea of Max Clifford as a PR person before this crisis unfolded, Mm 
we do have to right now live with some of the fallout from that. I mean, this is a guy who was you know, listed as a PR person in the Guardian sort of media power rankings. He was listed by PR Week as, as mm-hmm. part of the sort of power um, influential group in, in our industry. Mm-hmm. While I would not have included him on any list like that, the fact of the matter was that the industry, if it didn't actively embrace him, at least accepted his presence as part of our industry. And and so, to a certain extent, we have to then deal with the fact that he is identified by a huge number of people as a PR person. And yeah, yeah his problems are, to a certain extent, our problems. Let's assume that he is um, identified as part of the PR industry. Can we not just explain this away with the one bad apple argument? Well, I think that the first thing that needs to be said is that this is not an instance of professional misconduct. This is it not? Is, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it is directly related to his work as a public relations person. He was not. He's not been convicted of lying to the media. He's not been convicted of doing anything that would that is specific to the PR industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if Max Clifford ran a grocery store and was convicted of indecent assault, would the grocery industry need to distance itself from that? I mean, I'm not sure that I see the connection between his misbehavior and the industry in which he worked. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, I do think it's incumbent upon us at this point to make the case that, first of all, this is not endemic within the PR industry, one would hope to talk about the various things that that the industry does to ensure that this kind of behavior is not tolerated in normal mainstream public relations firms. Yeah, I mean, I do think we need to tell our story better. Okay, so last but by no means least, it is, of course, Sabre Awards season. Last week, we held the Sabre Awards Americas in New York, gave out a lot of awards. Next week, we're going to hold the Sabre Awards EMEA in London, where we'll give out even more awards. So, Paul, tell me, how big is the gap now between the quality of work that we are seeing in EMEA and the quality of work that we are seeing in the US? Okay, it's a gap, right? I think that's fair. The difference is still that in North America, what we see is much better planning, much better use of sort of research and data, the overused word of the year so far, in putting campaigns together. And okay. so, again, in, in, in North America, I think nearly always you see this very clear linear thing where it's, we did our research, we derived from our research this insight. Mm. Um, from this insight, we came up with this strategy. From this strategy, we came up with these various modes of creative execution. Multi-channel these days, paid, earned, owned, shared. I mean, nearly every program I see is thought through in terms of multiple channels of delivery or engagement. And then we got these results and there is not a universal, but a very broad realization that the results have to connect into some sort of business objective. In other words, massive media coverage or even awareness is not sufficient. We have to impact the business some way and demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. All of which is great, the way we ought to be doing things, I think. What I see in Europe, and this varies to a certain extent from market to market, but what I see in Europe is that occasionally we skip the first step altogether Really? That um, surprises me, though. I mean, I, certainly, I, look, I'm not suggesting this is universal, but mm-hmm. as a broad generalization, there's a lot of stuff that starts with, we had a brilliant idea, mm. and this was our brilliant idea. Now, having said that, the brilliant ideas in Europe 
are often much bolder and much more creative and much more exciting and riskier, mm-hmm. I think, is, is to a certain extent what it comes down to, than the big creative ideas that we see in the U.S. Mm. The U.S. tends to be safer and more conservative, less bold. Mm. I still see a lot of stuff where, you know, let's get a celebrity and we, let's put them on a TV media tour. And, and you can really move the needle that way still in, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think that celebrities are great for getting attention. I'm not sure that they're necessarily great for genuine engagement with the brand. Mm. In other words, people might engage with your celebrity without ever getting to the point where they understand what the brand message behind it is. I actually think in a lot of cases, um, the celebrity can be a distraction. Mm. Uh, the, The only place where I think that works really effectively is in healthcare, because I think that there are medical conditions and, and medical stories that you know, that are embarrassing or, you know, sort of the media finds slightly uncomfortable and they are reluctant to cover them without a celebrity there to make mm-hmm. it more palatable and more deliverable. Adult diapers. Yeah. For instance. Yes. There was a great campaign to you. You remember it as well as mm-hmm. I do two years ago from, from uh, Marina Mar Communication and Kimberly Clark uh, that won our best in show uh, where there was a high level of celebrity involvement. But, mm-hmm. but in, in a basic sort of consumer campaign, in the U.S., I think judges tend to look at the involvement of a celebrity and almost feel like it's cheating, like you mm. bought the coverage by paying the celebrity to come along and be your spokesperson. Celebrity campaigns typically don't do well mm. in, the, in the awards. Okay. And the other thing that I mentioned is the regional differences. And look, mm. the, the, clearly, the U.K. is much closer to the U.S. Mm. in terms of having embraced research and measurement well, in, in equal parts. And, and London is... I suppose, historically, the home of planning as well. So you would ex- imagine that, that, right. that to be more prominent. How exciting, though, is the work that you're seeing from markets like Sweden and, and Norway? Yeah, I mean, historically, over the last, well, in the 10 years that we've been doing the EMEA Awards, the Swedish market has been clearly disproportionately creative. Um, you know, pound for pound, it probably produces more great work than any other market we see. Um, and that remains true today. And, you know, this is an interesting sort of national stereotyping issue. But four or five years ago, when, when, I, when I visited Oslo and talked to some of the agencies there, um, there was this feeling that Norway would never win as many awards as Sweden because the Norwegians were inherently more modest than the Swedes and they didn't like to enter awards because it felt like showing off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that notion has clearly been blown out of the water in the last couple of years. I mean, we're yep. beginning to see really great work out of both multinationals based in Norway and local agencies that are doing really cool, innovative things. And this year, we started to see some of that out of Finland too. Um, mm. There are some very good local agencies in Finland that are uh, that are that are submitting to and winning awards. Mm. But you know, what's really interesting to me is the quality of work that we're seeing out of the Middle East, um, to a certain extent out of Africa, to a greater extent probably out of Eastern Europe. I think um, those markets are growing up incredibly fast and we're seeing some very surprising stuff out of those markets. I mean, some stuff that I think if you were, if you just read the headlines about that part of the world, you wouldn't expect this degree of sophistication. Um, And it's not a huge volume but the best of it is really good. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. And we look forward to welcoming you back onto the Echo Chamber in the not too 
distant future. That's all from us for this episode. We'd like to thank you, as always, for listening. You can get in touch with us um, on our Twitter handle, at Holmes Report, at our Facebook Holmes Report page. On our website, you can even call us up, should you choose to do so. I would like to thank Marketeers for DC, our broadcast partner, for helping us deliver the show. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening to the Echo Chamber podcast, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers 4DC, the international broadcast specialist. For all the latest information, you can follow us on Twitter using at HomesReport. Check out our Facebook page or simply explore the website at homesreport.com. Homes Report.